When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. As well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts, one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com slash party. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. And cover just £5.95 for the postage. And you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers. Each month, Beer 52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different, Beer 52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com slash party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com slash party. Hello and welcome to the Political Party American Election Special featuring two friends of the show who've previously been on. Anthony Scaramucci, who works for Donald Trump, and Seth Harris, who served in the Obama administration as Deputy Secretary for Labour and who knows Joe Biden well and worked closely with him during the Obama administration. Two fantastic guests and I know that when I record these during a period where the election is still in the balance or the result is still in the balance, that there are certain risks. So this was recorded last night, uh, Thursday, uh, the 5th of November. Anthony and Seth were obviously five hours behind. They're both on Eastern time. So this was uh, Thursday afternoon when I spoke to them, really, Thursday night here in the UK. So things may have changed since then. Um, but at that point, as you will know, things were still in the balance. Uh, various uh, lawsuits being launched. And that kind of hangs over this. But this show was recorded um, on the assumption that it looks like Joe Biden is the most likely victor. So that uh, taints these, not taints, <laughs> that informs these conversations. Two brilliant talkers, two of the best talkers I've ever had on this podcast. To have them both on the same episode is a real treat, and they bring different insights into the people that they know and into the politics of the United States. We begin with Anthony Scaramucci. He needs no introduction. I began by asking the Mooch whether he would have thought that the result would hang in the balance in the way that it does now. Well, it's Guy, it's Guy Fawkes Day, right? There's a little irony there. But, but here's what I would say to you. Um, I wanted a decision at 11.59 Eastern Standard Time or 10.59 on election night. And so we didn't get that. I think that was very frustrating for people that were trying to remove Mr. Trump. And so my reaction, however, is though the results have been quite spectacular and quite predictable. In fact, Joe Biden has had a masterful result for himself. He will likely, when this is over, Matthew, he'll have four, possibly five states that have flipped. 
And remember, he flipped those states on an incumbent. And so this is the third time since the end of the Second World War where an American president has been ousted from office by a challenger. And so uh, that stuff to me is amazing. He also brought with him the first African-American female vice president, which I think is also very impressive. And he's gotten the largest vote total in the history of the American presidency. Now, on the flip side, uh, I think the staggering numbers for Mr. Trump, staggering numbers, a 70-ish million person popular vote lets you know that the country is very divided and lets you know that this guy, okay, this SOB, I hope I'm allowed to say that on your podcast. Oh, you can say what you can go further than that on this show. All right, well, this, let's talk about this son of a bitch then. This son of a bitch can lie about the pandemic. He can politicize the mass. He can go after his citizens on Twitter. He can attack Democratic leaders of the West. He can praise despots. He can act like a complete motherfucking asshole whose face you want to smash. And he got 70 million votes. So he's a beast, man. You got to be fucking looking at him going, I mean, like, if, you, if we were on a football team and you and I were fucking playing Manchester United, right? And we were kick their ass in, but they Nothing kept coming Forest, back. Nottingham Forest, brother, yeah. Well, I love how it is. But, about a minute ago, you were... I'm not an English football fucking, you know, fan or anything. I don't know what's going on over there, but I'm just like, this guy's a fucking beast. Am I wrong? That's my I, love, I love how polite you were asking if you could say SOB and now you're calling them a motherfucking asshole. Well, I mean, no, I don't know. I know how far I could go on this. I mean, you know. I mean, look, after what I said to that jerk off reporter that got my ass fired, I mean, whatever. What difference does it make now? You know, I mean, exactly. my, my cherry has been popped in terms of what my level of decorum is in the society. So, I mean, why not just go full rogue? Absolutely. On the Matthew Ford, on the Matthew Ford podcast. You know, why not Enjoy go yourself. full rogue? Right. Just just on Trump, then, because you, you mentioned there 70 million votes in the face of all this stuff and all this behavior, particularly in the last year with the pandemic. Has COVID played a part in this at all, do you think? Well, yes, but it's really the insanity of Mr. Trump. I mean, at the end of the day, I said in Davos, Switzerland, January of this year, every elitist said he was 100 percent going to win the reelection. And OK. And I said, well, he's not going to win the re-election. They said, well, no, he is. I said, well, he won't because something will happen. These jobs are super complicated and he's not managing the country. He's tweeting and watching television and his boxer shorts. He's not managing the country. And he doesn't have the intellectual vacuity to really understand what's going on. He's got no policy wonkishness about him. And so, so a result of which he's not going to figure this thing out. And something will go wrong. I thought it was the Soleimani strike, Matt. I thought that when they killed General Soleimani, I said, okay, here's the crisis that's going to unravel Trump. But it wasn't. And thank God it wasn't because there's no need for a kinetic war. But look at what's happened here. We've got 1,000 people, 1,200 people dying a day. We have 100,000 cases of COVID. The thing is raging rampantly throughout our country. Uh, he's got his chief of staff a week before the election saying, eh, we're not going to be able to control this thing. Let's let it go. And We'll try to deal with it with therapeutics and vaccines. And the scientific community is like, oh, what are you talking about? You're going to kill 7 million people. It's totally unnecessary. You know, you have your own set of problems in your country. I mean, you've got some major stuff going on there. I don't want to opine about that because I'm in enough trouble in my country. And right now, people in the UK still like me. So why do I need to get involved with UK politics? But, but I'm saying this guy's nuts. And, you know, and I tried to stay loyal to him. And that's the irony, okay? Grew up in a blue-collar family. 
I saw the plight of the blue collar people. I said, well, maybe he can help them. I was drawn to him, tried to help him. He fired me. He fired me justifiably. I was on your show a few years ago. I never complained about being fired. There was no bitterness. I said, okay, but now he's nuts. He's like separating the women from the children at the border. He's putting them in cages. He's yelling and ranting and raving at the press, being the men of the people. He's praising Vladimir Putin and attacking our intelligence. He's what are you doing? You're crazy. Cut it out. But he wouldn't listen. And so now he's going to lose the presidency. So, But he's a beast. He'll be with us for a long period of time. Well, let's come on to that. But just before that, do you think he'd have won had COVID not happened? Well, again, I'm going to stipulate no, because something happens. If you're saying there was no crisis and there was a replication of 2019 into 2020, then yes, I think he would have won. I, I think you can't look at those vote totals and not see that. Uh, but, uh, you know, look, but that's how the world works. You know, that's how the world works. You know, if, you know, if my, uh, my uncle had boobs, he'd be my aunt, you know, how it is right. I mean, it's, that's not how the world works, <laughs> yeah. you know, but he's, he's stopping the, uh, the voice. He's figured out a way to successfully get the vote counting to stop in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. So I don't know if that's, uh, good news or bad news, but, uh, you know, even if he gets the vote to stop there, he's got problems in Georgia. He's got problems in Nevada. He's got problems in Arizona. So uh, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see what happens here. We all remember 2000. That was the first time really we'd seen this sort of thing in our lifetimes. How long could this potentially go on? And, and how long will he want it to go on? Will he just want to drag it out as long as possible and see that the longer he can cast out, the longer he can tangle this up in legal proceedings is better for him? Or might he calculate he concedes and then it's easier for him to run next time. Where do you think his head will be at and stuff like that? Well, I mean, listen, I'm not, I know him pretty well. Uh, if, he, if he loses, I predict he will lose. And if he, if he loses, what will end up happening is he will announce or declare himself for president. Because I think it's an easy thing for him to do. He could just say January 21st, I've declared myself for president, fill out the paperwork, and then he can start the fundraising again. He's got a ton of these MAGA supporters. They'll write him checks. And then he can organize these events and fly around the country and be a thorn in everybody's side for another four years. Why wouldn't he do that? You know, these guys have probably taken tens of millions of dollars from the campaign and put it into their pockets. And so why wouldn't he do that? It would make him money and it would keep him uh, with a pretty high profile. And what's, you know, The only reason why he wouldn't do that, of course, would be is if he wanted one of his children to take the mantle of leadership, but that's not his personality. He's a full on narcissist. Let me tell you something, man. He only, when he's doing the new search, it's T-R-U-M-P. He's not searching <laughs> anybody else, you know? And when what? I was in the white ass, he used to shit all over Ivanka and Jared and all these people, you know, he, he only really cares about himself. And what would, what would that involve? How would he shit over them? Yeah, we got to get rid of them. They're making bad decisions. They're making me look bad. And then, of course, when they made him look good, he would take credit for it. You know, that's how he did it. That's everybody. And are they scared you know, the of him? Why, the reason why he hobbled, he treated everybody the same, them as well. But the reason why he hobbled the administration is everybody was paralyzed with fear. They didn't want to be humiliated by him and the tweet. So, okay, Jesus, I want to do something stupid here. I'm going to get myself fired by tweet. So let me do nothing. And that's what went on in the administration throughout the executive branch of the administration. You, you got to get Olivia Troy or Miles uh, uh, Taylor on your podcast. Those are two people that worked at the Homeland Security. Miles was the anonymous. He wrote the anonymous book. Olivia was the, on the vice president's 
task force, the coronavirus task force. She threw her hands up and quit and said, I'm sorry, I can't take this anymore. These people are crazy, you know, and you got to get them on your podcast. They'll tell you some really crazy story, quirky stories about how mismanaged everything was under Donald Trump. Well, I'd love to have them on. Um, what do you right, think? Well, I'll, I'll reach out to them for you. Oh, that'd be great. You. Thank you. Thank you very and, much. Uh, see if you can get them on. And how do, you know, I mean, we kind of know how Trump treats other people, but how do his family react to him in that circumstance? And how, what was Ivanka's approach hostages. to him? It's like a codependent Stockholm system. They're all hostages to him, right? I mean, come on. They sit there, they know he's nuts, and they work around him. So that's some sort but, of know, medieval they like the trappings. They like the trappings of power, and they like the environment that he's thrusted them in and they are taking advantage of it for themselves. I mean, Jared and Ivanka made $132 million last year working inside the White House. I mean, if that isn't disgraceful and a conflict of interest, I don't, I don't know how I can give you a more glaring example of a conflict of interest, you know? So let's say Trump wants to run next time. Would the Republicans have him? Well, I mean, they didn't want him last time, right? And so, you know, who's to say that they want him? It doesn't really matter. He's a force of nature. And so whether they want him or not, if he's running, he's going to bring a pretty effective voting block with him, you know? But I believe he won't run. That's my, that's my prediction. I predict ultimately, could he announce that he's running and all that head fakery? Yes, but I don't, I don't think he's going to do it. He's 78 years old at that point. He's in declining health. He has health issues. Um, and, uh, we'll see. I mean, but also the world's going to change again. You know how the world changed. Think about where the world was in 2016, leaving the Obama administration and where it is, uh, as we're heading towards the end of Trumpism, you know, think about where this is all going, you know, because and, uh, you know, we, we always... could be in a totally, we could be in a totally different environment. I'm hoping it'll be a healing based environment. I'm hoping it'll be a unifying environment. We'll have to see, you know? I'll tell you what, though. I'm like the Michael Corleone of politics. I was trying to get out of the goddamn thing. You know? once, he went after my, once he went after my wife, I'm like, okay, that's what you're going to do? I mean, I raised you and gave you millions of dollars. I gave you three years of my life, hundreds of hours of media advocacy. I said one thing that you didn't like. I said, you can't talk about the squad like that. It sounds racist. You don't like that. So he starts attacking me. And I'm a New Yorker. What did you think I was going to do, Matt? I was not going to attack him? Of course I could attack him. I think I called him Fidel Adolf Trump, right? Because I was trying to get the fat shaming in there with the, you know, the attack on the dictatorship aspects of him. And then he went nuts, you know, nuts. And he started attacking me more. And then I hit him a couple more times because I know how to, you know, I think I'm a reasonably, I mean, you know, I think I'm a reasonably good troll, right? I, I think so. And then I, I have to be because he, you know, I've triggered the son of a bitch, right? So then he goes after my wife. I mean, is this guy crazy? I mean, let me ask your listeners on your podcast, okay? Let me ask them this rhetorical question. Do I look like Ted Cruz? <laughs> Do I act like Ted Cruz? Someone's going to come after my wife and I'm going to sit there like a supplicant? Do I look like that? No, no, you haven't grown a, you haven't grown a silly beard for starters. Yeah, I mean, are you crazy? Okay, come on, man. I'm going to knock him into next week, man. <laughs> but I know that after but I, left... I did a number on the guy. Let me, let me, let me just say this thing because you'll enjoy this. I did a number on the guy because I knew where I could get him, right? So, you know, I organized. I was on the radio in Philadelphia. See, I went into white ethnic areas, okay? And I said, let me try to convince these white ethnics who are white ethnics like me to not vote for him. That did not work. So the white ethnics had no bid for me telling them they were wearing their MAGA hats and they were unconditional love for Trump. 
Why is that? So I had to adapt. What's that? Why? Because again, they feel left out of the system and they feel that he is representing them. He's like their anger representative. He's their anger cheerleader. Still you know? now, four years on. Yes, no question. Look at the voting numbers. You yeah. know, in the precincts that had the most COVID, where you'd say, okay, no way that precinct's going to vote for him. He had higher vote totals in those precincts than he did in 2016. Wow. Okay, but I saw that about three months ago because I was doing that. I was like, okay, this is not working. So I went into the urban areas. I went into the areas where they hated him. I said, okay, let me throw some third flame logs over here. Let's see if I can get a fucking prairie fire going. You know what I mean? And that worked. You know, I spent a lot of time in Philly. I spent a lot of time in Pittsburgh. I was in Detroit. I was talking to the people that hated him to get their asses up off the couch to go vote him out. You see, I, I had the wrong strategy in the beginning of this thing. So I don't know if I moved a couple people. Great. If I didn't, it was a lot of fun. I'm a very happy warrior, Matthew. You know, it was no, the no mooch, problem. The mooch what yeah. won it. Yeah, I didn't say it. I won it. I'm saying I was part of a process. I mean, here's the irony. The guy is a unifier, man. He unified all of us against him. I'm teamed up with AOC, right? Imagine that. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Who could do that? Only Trump could team me up with AOC and Bernie Sanders, right? But Have you ever, have you ever spoken to, to them? Have you ever spoken to AOC and Bernie Sanders? I haven't, no. I haven't. I you like her though. I'm 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 impressed with her. Okay, I don't agree with her policies, but I'm impressed with her. She's a hard worker, and she is a shoe leather burner, and uh, she has a very strong following, and she's a star. You have to. I mean, and by the way, Trump is a star. I may I may not like what he's doing. I may think what he's doing is very dangerous, but you can't say that this guy is not a star. You can't. You know, look, everybody rubbernecks Trump. You know, it's like a verbal car crash happening. Okay, and you're in the car. And you're like, okay, wait a minute. Oh, there he is on the TV. Let me stop the chat. Oh, okay. This fucking guy's going to say something crazy. Let me just leave it right here. Let's see what happens. Right? The entire world's doing that, right? And then all of a sudden, they're like, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. A little bit too much for me. I think I've had enough of this. And that's what I prayed on, you know? Talking of white working class Americans and and how they still identify with Trump, how some of them do. One of the interesting results of the night, the, the places where Biden won last time, that Biden won this time where Trump last, won last time, Michigan seems particularly symbolic. Uh, that, was, that seemed to be totemic of Trump's victory last time. Fascinating that there they've turned their back on Trump. Yeah, but ur- urban Michigan, mm. not, not rural Michigan. You know, look at the map where the voting is taking place. Concentrated uh, populations, they voted against them. Rural uh, places they voted with them. Suburban women voted against them. Suburban men voted with them. And w- what other trends have you seen then? I mean, I know that there's still lots of votes being counted and everything, but w- w- apart from the, the places we've described, are there any other democratic um, sh- uh, demographic shifts that we've seen w- with gender, with race that are different to last time? With age, you know, you know, it's 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 a good question. I would say that there's more brown and black and minorities and gay American men and women than there are elderly white men and possibly white women. I think that's ultimately the analysis. And so what you're seeing is it's almost like the way the baby boomers are going as they're aging 
the population is being replaced, they're angry about it. You know, they they see the death of white America and they see Mr. Trump as standing there as their guardian. But if they're not careful, they'll become a minority party for a generation. They'll be reduced to aging white people that are buying my pillows and catheters from Fox News commercial interruptions. You see what I'm saying? And you as don't well want as, that. Well, as well as the White House, I want to ask you about the the, the House yeah. and the Senate. Um, because it looks like the Democrats might keep the House, the Republicans are ahead in the Senate. Obviously, this is all still going on as well. So by the time people listen to this, that may have changed. Um, I just want to pick your brains at the moment about the implications for this for your day job. What are the implications for the markets for uh, perhaps, say, uh, you know, the Democrats well, the Morgan, not winning the Morgan, every... The Morgan loves, the Morgan loves this. You know, the Morgan, this is the perfect scenario as my... One of my hedge fund managers, a billionaire, he just called me from his oceanfront apartment. I mean, his oceanfront apartment, his oceanfront house in, in Bridgehampton. He said, this is the best. He goes, uh, we get rid of Trump. That's good for our soul. We keep the Senate. That's good for our pocketbook. That's basically what, what his summation was about those contests. So that's, what, that's what's best for America, really, a, a Democratic president and a, and a Republican Senate. Well, the Wall Streeters would think that, you know, I'm not exactly sure anymore what's best for America. I think what would be best for America is let's dial down the rhetoric, you know. How about in America, let me make the sign of the cross, right, for those of you that are Catholics out there. How about an America where the President of the United States is not attacking his fellow citizens, private citizens on Twitter, the publicly traded companies on Twitter. He's not acting like a crazed batshit uncle living in the attic, okay. How about an America where that's going on and now you've got somebody that's actually trying to normalize the government and working towards a consensus? How about that kind of America? That could be an amazing America. But how difficult will it be for Joe Biden if he's, if he's a Democratic president trying to deal with the Republican Senate? There's a danger he's not going to be able to get much done. Yes, but it's Joe Biden. You know, he's 47 years in the job. He knows Mitch McConnell for four decades. He knows the workings of that government and people generally like him. He was not the Hillary Clinton polarizing figure. They generally like him and he's smart, 78 years old. Maybe he'll do something transformative. Maybe he'll go to McConnell and say, okay, come on, let's cut a deal on stimulus. Let's cut one on infrastructure and education. Republicans and Democrats can find common ground in those areas. Let's put a few wins up on the board. It'll make the American people happy. And, and just to come back to Trump then, will he be, what will his emotional reaction be to defeat? Will he be embarrassed? Will he be humiliated? Will he cry? I don't know. I mean, my, my feeling about it is he'll be in denial. He'll say it got stolen from him. He'll, he'll chant the victimhood and the deep state and the conspiracy theory, and he'll be, he'll be banging that drum for the rest of his life. He was setting up that narrative in 2016. He expected to lose, and his narrative was going to be, you know, it's impossible, rigged system, I couldn't get through the rig system. Then he won by accident. And so now he's just repackaging that branding for 2020. And just, so I think, you know, the one thing is because this is one thing about him because everybody two dimensionalizes him or they make a Muppet out of him like spitting image. He's a human, he's a, he's a human being. And so mm. there is in the deep recesses of that mind, holy shit, I really screwed this up. If I had just listened, you know, I just sent out a tweet because you know, I. You know, I love trolling. It's like one of the, my favorite things to do, actually, is to like be a troll on social media. And so I just sent out a tweet 
do you mind if I read this tweet no, on the but, air? I mean, please. is that okay? I mean, because this is like, this is like, and it's probably self-congratulatory. So I know the Brits are probably horrified at my <laughs> American garishness. So I apologize for that. But this sums up Trump to me. So I just had to fire this out there. If only Trump had attacked COVID-19 pandemic this, with the same vigor, he is attacking black people and their right to vote and have their votes counted, we would have saved thousands of lives, possibly hundreds of thousands and millions of jobs and maybe even several GDP points. You get my point? Yes. I mean, what the hell did you do? You could have been the healing president. You could have got out there in February and said, okay, listen, man, this is going to be really some bad stuff going on here. I'm going to listen to and, uh, Fauci and Burks. This is what we're doing. We're going to coordinate it with the 50 states and we're going to roll out a plan to save American lives. We didn't want to do that. Hey, we're opening up by Easter Sunday, he was telling people. You know? Well, that's what I wonder about we, him. Everybody that wears a red hat has a higher incidence of COVID. You know what I mean? There's a that's blue mask or a red hat, man. You know, that's how it works. Is how much daylight gets in there. I, I understand that as a defense mechanism, he's always going to say it was rigged, it was stolen. Yeah, of course. But that's what I'm really interested in is deep yeah, no, down. There's a lot of daylight. There's a lot of daylight going in there. There's a lot of daylight. Don't underestimate the guy. There's a more reflection in this guy than people think. We yeah. touched on it earlier, but he, he, you know, let's say he follows the plan that, as you lay it out, that he, he declares that he's going to stand next time. He begins a, a, a nationwide tour of rallies you know, that he's always been doing. At what point then does he, he basically stop doing that? I don't know. You know, you, you know, I could be totally wrong on this. Maybe he'll say, you know what, this whole thing is exhausting and he takes a powder. He might do that. This is a humiliating loss for him. Okay. Mm -hmm. He was the sitting president of the United States and he's going to be one of three sitting presidents of the United States that became a one-term president due to his malfeasance and incompetence. And so he can, he can frame the narrative any way that he wants but that's sort of where he is right now. And so I don't know, you know, to me, I don't know. I don't think he can, uh, I don't think he can uh, get there uh, in his brain a hundred percent and say that I did a great job and it got stolen from me. And so therefore I'm going to march around and pretend that uh, I'm great. I don't think so. I think he's going to be conflicted. And I think, I think that's going to be torturous for him. And there's a weird thing here because there's a lot of people that dislike him personally. I actually don't. Everyone says that I do, but I don't because I work for the guy. I liked him. I just think he's nuts. But, uh, you know, people are like, okay, this is great that he's got to sit this thing the way it is right now. And he's being tortured and agonized by the perhaps the process that he may win, but he's going to lose and all that sort of stuff. A lot of the people that have schadenfreude that want to get pleasure from his pain are enjoying this. I'm not. I want this to end and I want the people to try to come together. And do you think it's quite hard for, sometimes from a distance being here in the UK, watching American politics, obviously you're still in a state of limbo. You don't know any more results than we know because we're all watching the same news programs, but right. is there a sense in America that Trump has lost and that it's just a, a matter of time now before that's confirmed or does it still no, feel well, like he's well, kind of in I the fight? No, I think that the MAGA people think he's, there's still some hope. I think the people that are close to the Biden campaign have gotten their exit polling data. And if you look at the precincts that are left to report, yeah, I mean, he's, he's probably lost, you know. I mean, and by the way, he tried to rig it. He, 
here's what they did. They went to the Pennsylvania Republican legislature. They said, okay, you can't, you can't start the vote of these absentee ballots until election day. So that would delay the vote. And then he came at them from the other side and said, you got to stop the vote because it's after election day. See what they did? So all those people that voted absentee as a result of the pandemic, they're trying to screw them out of their democracy. You see what they're doing? And so, I mean, the one cool thing about Trump, he's so goddamn transparent. I mean, he's like, okay, I'm here to crush and destroy your democracy. So hopefully we'll beat them. And then people that really love democracy, like myself, hopefully we can get involved and say, okay, how do we maintain and ensure and restore these institutions of democracy? What's he do now for the next six or seven weeks, as well as trying to fight this as long as he can fight it? Do you think now he's going to go hell for leather? Is he going to start passing all sorts of and, and signing all sorts of executive orders? Is there yeah, any chance he might try and literally yeah. not leave well, office? No, I don't think he'll do that, but he'll definitely go with the pardon route. He'll definitely, you know, if you told me he pardoned every one of his kids unconditionally, he would probably try something like that. I don't know if he can pardon himself. Maybe he'll try that. I don't know. He doesn't care. Dude, he's the honey badger. You ever see those the YouTube honey badger? He doesn't give a shit. Honey badger doesn't give a shit. You know what I mean? He doesn't care. Whatever was in his best interest, he'll do. And do you think he'll go to the inauguration? Me? Well, will he? Oh, him. Oh, yeah. him. Oh, yeah. No, I, I think he will. Yeah. He has to. I think he has to. I remember, he, he wants to avoid prosecution. He wants to avoid the threat of going to jail from some of these criminal investigations he's under. Mm-hmm. And the best way to do that is to handle himself right here. And will you go? No, I have no interest in going. Man, I'm done with this shit. Okay, let me tell you. I'm like, like I said, I'm like the Michael Corleone. I'm done with this. When this is over, I'm going back to business, and hopefully, I'm getting back on your comedy show when you guys let me back in the country. You know, I mean, like I told you last time, right? Trump did solve the immigration problem. We can't leave, and nobody can come in. So, I mean, I don't know. You know, I want to come over there. I want to have a gin and tonic, and I want to hang out on your uh, show. I want you to put the orange wig on and yell at me and fire me. <laughs> That's what I want. We'll have to arrange it. Mooch, it is always an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. It's great to be on, man. God bless. Thank you. There you go, the Mooch. Straight talkers don't come much more straight talking than him. Always hilarious and has those razor sharp insights, not just into American politics and society, but into what Trump will be thinking and what he will be planning now. And, uh, well, it's just such a phenomenal, entertaining speaker. My other guest, Seth Harris, as well, brilliant. I mean, I think to British ears as well. Well, firstly, they're two phenomenal guests, but also they just talk so well. And it's something I often often touch on in this podcast. When you talk to someone who can really talk, who can really use their accent and their vocabulary, and both these guys do, are just such a treat to listen to. Seth uh, was on the show earlier in the year, one of the best guests I've had on. Uh, you remember he was Deputy Secretary of Labour for Obama, was Secretary for a while, and in the Obama administration worked really closely with Joe Biden. So I wanted to pick Seth's brains about Joe Biden and how he'll be feeling and what his plan will be. But also, uh, Seth is phenomenal at explaining the political challenges in America, particularly those that face the centre-left, the Democrats. And obviously that's something I'm particularly interested in. Uh, and he's really good at talking about what this election means, what the current outcome as it stands means. And, and actually, regardless of who eventually is declared officially the winner, his analysis already of the results is absolutely superb as a snapshot of American society. So uh, 
there's so many treats in this, you, you're going to love them. But I began by asking Seth whether at 1.20pm Eastern Time on Thursday the 5th of November, how he was feeling about the election and how it had gone so far. I, I feel like we've been on a roller coaster. Um, the so it's very interesting for for the people I communicate with in my personal life, not my professional life. And uh, the polling had built up an expectation that Donald Trump would suffer a kill shot early in the evening of election eve. You know that we would get results in Florida or Georgia or Texas or North Carolina. He would lose one of those states, and it would be all over. And there would be dancing in the streets, and <laughs> dogs would lie down with cats, and I don't know. And um, and that didn't happen. That didn't happen. And uh, really, it was it was evident. It it was a symptom of Democrats really hoping not merely to defeat Donald Trump, but for Trumpism to be repudiated in the United States. And now, two days after they had their expectations dashed, they're still watching the vote count continue. Now, it's looking increasingly likely that Joe Biden is going to win. In fact, I think he is going to win. I'll go so far as to say that he is going to win. Although, uh, please broadcast this before we know for sure, because <laughs> I don't want to be embarrassed. But. Um, and, and and ironically, it looks like there's a reasonable chance that he'll win one of those early states. It's just going to take two or three days. That's Georgia. It looks like uh, he has a good shot at winning Georgia. But um, I don't think anybody looking at this election can say that Donald Trump and Trumpism have been repudiated. If anything, Donald Trump did better this time than he did last time. Um, and Joe Biden just happened to do better than that. And so um, that is, I think, to a lot of people on my side of the aisle, disappointing. But uh, there are bigger disappointments in these election results for Democrats. Democrats are not going, well, it would take uh, a big shock in the runoff elections that are to come in, in Georgia for the United States Senate for Democrats to take control of the Senate. Democrats actually lost seats in the U.S. House of Representatives. I don't think anyone was predicting that. Certainly, I was not. And Democrats did not make progress in state legislatures in the way that they had hoped, our local governments. And so, uh, sort of across the board, uh, there has been a lot of disappointment, even though in the marquee race, our guy is going to win and is going to be the president for the next four years. And they, we're going to have a very, very different civic life. We're going to have a different leader in Washington. We're going to have a different government. We're going to have different policies. But 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 people wanted, uh, uh, they, they not only wanted Donald Trump's death, they wanted to dance on his grave. And that's, that's not where things came out. There's so many things that come out of those fascinating things you say. First and foremost, just about what people's expectations were going into this week's election. Do you think, you, it just feels like there's so many elections, even in my relatively short life, where we talk about, oh, the polls got it wrong, and oh, the pollsters are going to have to look at themselves, and Trump and Brexit, 1992 here. Is it just, I mean, obviously so many of the votes were done postally. Maybe that makes it harder to get a sense. But has opinion polling become harder to make accurate in the last few years? Uh, well, I think there's no question that it's harder now because people don't answer their phones. I mean, the worst thing that happened to polling 
um, was the disclosure of the telephone number from which the call is coming. And, <laughs> right, and I, I mean, my, uh, I'll just, uh, I'll disclose a little family secret. I hope you don't mind. Nobody's listening anyway, right? So I can go ahead and tell you <laughs> anything I want. But my wife and I never answer our home phone. We might answer our cell phones if we know who it is and it's somebody who's, uh, whose name pops up that we recognize on our phones, but we never answer our home phone because it's almost always uh, spam, right? It's almost yes. always a, a call from someone I don't want to talk to. And um, so pollsters, I mean, we may very well have been called a hundred times by pollsters. We would have no way to know. We don't, we don't answer that phone. Um, so in that era, it's definitely become more difficult. But, but I, I, it's, I think there's a very interesting phenomenon. Let me say, I'm not a pollster. I'm not an expert in any of this stuff, but I'm intrigued by uh, the last three elections, including this, this one that we're wrapping up right now. Uh, in the two elections where Donald Trump was in the, on the ballot, the polls were not even close. Most of the polls were not even close. Um, national polling had Joe Biden winning nationally by nine points. It looks like it'll be two or three points. He'll win by three or four million votes, uh, the popular vote. Um, they missed in states by significant margins, you know, particularly the swing states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, they had Biden up in Pennsylvania by five and in Michigan, Wisconsin, one poll had uh, Biden up by 17. And it's going to end up being tenths of a percent uh, rather than multiple percentages. So that's when Donald Trump is on the ballot. But then we had an election in 2018 where Donald Trump was not on the ballot. It was a by-election, and so Democrats and Republicans in congressional races and state legislative races and some gubernatorial races were on the ballot. And the polling was much, much more accurate, much more accurate, much closer to predicting the result for days leading into the, the election. So the question that we have to answer is, what's happening when Donald Trump is on the ballot? Now, it's obvious that you know, pollsters don't go insane just because Donald Trump's name appears on the ballot, um, there's something about his voters, something about what he does with his voters, something about his relationship with his voters and his voters' relationships with the public, with pollsters, uh, with their neighbors. Maybe they're not as willing to talk about it. Maybe they're polling the wrong people. He does tend to bring out populations of people who are not regular voters. Mm. I think, I think that's what pollsters need to figure out. And of course, polling is useless if it can't pick up a presidential election, regardless of who's on the ballot. So I think that industry has a whole lot to, to consider. Um, and uh, there are people who are really angry about it. You know, those expectations I was talking about that Democrats had of a kill shot, that was entirely based on the polling. And the polling just got it completely wrong in Texas and Florida and Georgia and North Carolina. It really was uh, in a lot of the Senate races around the country, um, the, the, the pollsters got it wrong. So they've really got to engage in some self-reflection and they need some math help. They, if you know a math tutor for the polling industry, now is the time to suggest that math tutor. Well, there is a, there's a superb pollster over here. I mean, there are obviously very good po uh, pollsters over there, but Deborah Mattinson, who is someone uh, I will put you in touch with, who, who worked with the Labour Party here, who's really, really good. She runs a think tank called Britain Thinks. So um, 
Who knows? Maybe this could be a big break in America. We'll see. Um, <laughs> Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Just, just for, for Democrats then, when did your hopes start getting raised? Because from afar, it felt like Trump was probably going to get elected and then COVID happens, uh, get re-elected, sorry. Is that how it sort of felt to you that, that, that the COVID experience made you think actually this is more up for grabs than it would have been without it? Oh, there's no question about it. It was not just COVID. It was the collapse of the economy. Uh, in the middle of March, our economy experienced the most rapid and deepest depression, really, or recession it's ever experienced. We've In six weeks, our economy lost 21 and a half million jobs and, I don't know, nine or 10% in gross domestic product. That is like leaping off the highest cliff. Um, um, I was going to do a Cliffs of Dover joke there, but I think I'll just oh, I'll save that. I'll save that for later in the podcast. I'll, I'll foreshadow it for later. But the uh, and at that point, when when unemployment climbed as dramatically as it did, approaching not quite reaching, but approaching the levels that we experienced during the Great Depression, um, it was then the Democrats thought, "Oh, this this guy's in trouble now." If he had responded in the way that a world leader would respond, you know, responsibly and responsibly in a sober way, really, you know, based on the evidence, based on the availability of resources, rather than in a Trumpian defensive, you know, fact-free way, he might well have recovered. In fact, he might have saved the country from a lot of deaths, a lot of suffering, a lot of illness, a lot of economic strife, uh, uh, lost jobs, lost homes, lost businesses. You know, he he might have actually risen to the occasion and done the right thing. And then he possibly, I'm not, I don't want to guarantee this, but he possibly could have won this election. But he took a different path. Now, there is a case to be made uh, bluntly, and I've been I've been talking this through uh, with frankly, with my children and some other friends of mine, um, trying to figure out exactly what it is about Trump that appeals to 68 million Americans such that they vote for him. And there, I think there are a lot of things uh, that appeal to them. But part of it is that he spits in the face of an establishment that those voters feel have stepped on them, left them behind, uh, exploited them, cheated them, focused on the concerns of other people who maybe they feel are less worthy than them. Um, And so to some extent, the Trump response to COVID was very appealing to those voters. You know, they don't want to hear from scientists. They don't want 
to be told, no, you can't have your business open. You can't go to work. You can't go to your gym. You can't be in a bar. You can't go to that motorcycle rally in Sturgis, South Dakota. You know, they, they, there is a very, very strong strain in the United States of libertarian individualism. Mm. Um, although I don't think that those people would necessarily use that highfalutin term, but there's a very strong sense of, uh, I, I, I'm not going to let anybody else make any decisions for me. And I'm certainly not going to let those people, the, the, the people who live on the coast who think they're better than me, who have fancy, you know, what they think of as fancy educational degrees that they think gives them the power to tell me what to do. Um, and you know, and there's, there's race in there and there's ethnicity in there and there's some xenophobia in there, but there, they, this is to some extent we're reaping or we're reaping what we have sown over decades where government and institutions have failed many, 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 many millions of Americans. And rather than turning back and focusing on them, we seem to be focusing on other groups all of whom have a legitimate claim on equal protection in the United States and the best in, the best of citizenship in the United States, but they feel that the attention is going to these other groups that they don't necessarily like very much, and they're get and they're having to pay for it. Not just that they're not getting it, but they're having to pay for it with their hard-earned tax dollars. So, having a guy who um, is to some extent a performance artist who has spent a career shocking the establishment that he so desperately wants to be a part of, not to psychoanalyze him, but uh, I think really is appealing to a lot of people. And it may be what brings them out to the polls and why they buy into his, you know, fallacious claims about science, climate change, you know, corruption in the Biden family, go down the long list of stuff that they buy into. You know, conspiracy theory is now a cottage industry in the United States. So uh, I think that's another reckoning that we're going to have to come to. Uh, and I and let me say, when I say we, I really mean me and the people that I work with in politics, um, that that we have, we have failed to communicate with those folks in a way that makes sense for them. And we've left them with all due respect to him, a flim-flam man. We've let a con man communicate with them and sell to them rather than us going to them and making our case, and we should be making their case. But I think they view a lot of people in my party, uh, and let me say, I think that this was absolutely true of labor um, in Britain, and I think this was a lot of the motivation behind Brexit, is they feel very strongly that the people who pretended to be their friends actually ended up screwing them with a whole bunch of public policies that didn't have to be what they were. Uh, that maybe begins with globalization and trade, but tax policy and you know, urban policy and, and transportation policy and uh, jobs, tax, taxes. I mean, you could go down a long list of failures. Uh, and and we, 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 we never came back and said, we hear you now. You know, after 2016, we didn't say we hear you. We, what we did is we mocked them. And we certainly mocked their leader uh, and made it all about his personality and his very, very serious flaws. So we have some work to do. We have a lot of work to do because we got, you know, uh, Joe Biden saved us uh, because that's what he does. Let me just say that's one of the reasons I admire him so much. But across the board, it's hard to feel good about how this election came out for, for Democrats.
communication seems to be the key word there because it's not necessarily that the Democrats, New Labour, whoever you would put in that group, depending on what country you're in, don't deliver for those groups. But there's something in that relationship that breaks down, even when those people are better off under a Democrat president than under a Republican one. So is it one more of style and tone? Is it more that they want to hear their accents and their styles reflected in some of the politicians that they see? That could very well be. So, you know, I, I should have uh, um, I, I should have prefaced that long monologue that I just engaged in, that soliloquy, that Shakespearean soliloquy that I just uh, inflicted on you and your listeners. I should have said, we have to be really careful not to be glib about how we talk about those Americans, that large population of Americans mm. uh, uh, who are my countrymen and women and who should be a big part of my community, but I think they feel that I'm not a part of their community, and that's a shame. I should have said, we really need to ask them. We need to communicate with them and let them tell us what they want. Now, just because they want it doesn't mean they get it any more than I get everything that I want. Um, but we're not in a, we're not in an effective dialogue with them and they feel with good reason that we have, uh, ignored them and left them behind and whatever coast we might be traveling to or whatever big city we might be traveling to that we kind of look down and snicker. But, um, I think they're not wrong in thinking that we're certainly not communicating and we're not living in the same information universe. We're not living in the same kinds of communities. We don't necessarily have the same goals. And that is a recipe for disaster. Um, you know, we, we may have averted disaster this time. Um, but, you know, there are armed men and women surrounding the places in the United States where votes are being counted. Now, fortunately, they are either being restrained or showing restraint. But that's not the kind of behavior we uh, expect of a mature democracy. But it's where we are right now. The challenge that you face as the centre-left in America is identical to the challenge that the centre-left faces in the UK, which is how do you marry the socially conservative blue-collar areas with the metropolitan, internationalist, more liberal areas? How do you have a shared vision where those two groups don't feel like either one of them is being sold out, a vision that they can both come together around? I realize that's the uh, $64 well, let me just say, million dollar I, question. <laughs> exactly. If, if I had, well, let me just say, I'm so flattered that you think <laughs> I would have an answer oh, to a question would. of that magnitude. My goodness. I, 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 I have obviously <laughs> succeeded in fooling you about who I am. But um, so I, I'll give you just from my world, from, from the world of somebody who works in labor and employment law and policy, I will give you part of the answer but I don't want to suggest that this is a panacea. Um, union voters in the United States, voters who are members of labor unions, vote much more heavily for Democrats than other voters who are in every other way just like them. And the union is the dispositive factor. Now, part of that is because the unions are very skilled 
at communicating with their members and persuading them regarding the issues that are of importance to the union. But it's also the case that union members who are quite culturally conservative, you know, people who are members of the National Rifle Association, people who are regular churchgoers, maybe even evangelical churchgoers, which is a very conservative population in the United States. They may be people who hold views with respect to race and sexuality that are different from mine. But when push comes to shove, they strongly support their unions. My, I had a cousin, a late cousin of mine, who was a plumber, who absolutely fit that description. He lived on Long Island uh, back when I did as well in New York. And he was, he was a rock-ribbed conservative. He was so conservative, he wasn't even in the Republican Party. He was in the conservative party, not your conservative party, but the conservative party in New York State that was for the really, really conservative folks. But he was a tried and true trade unionist. He stood with his union. He actually criticized his union for not being union enough sometimes. He was a ferocious defender of his union brothers and sisters, of the union itself, of union policies. Now, they didn't succeed in getting him to vote the way they wanted him to vote necessarily, but that spirit really made a big difference. So <clears throat> the labor movement in the United States is a thin shadow of what it once was. It's about one-fifth the size of what it was at its peak 70 years ago uh, from a, as a percentage of, uh, of the total workforce. And the shrinking of the labor movement means that all of those voters who otherwise would have been standing with their union against corporations that abuse their power, abuse workers, exploit not just the environment, but workers and working families and communities, um, now are on their own. And they feel on their own. They feel left out. They feel like nobody is defending them. They can't come together to defend themselves because the laws have been so rigged against unions for so long that it's very hard to organize a union. And let me just say, Again, I'm not, not an expert in British labor, but I think the same thing has happened in Great Britain. You know, the British labor movement used to be the Labor Party and vice versa. It used to be large, powerful. You know, when miners went on strike, the country shut, shut down. When railroad workers went on strike, the country shut down. There is no union in the United States, and I doubt there's a union in Great Britain right now that could actually shut the economy down. Not that that's a good thing, but they, they no longer have that level of power. Just the threat of being able to do that gave them tremendous power. Um, and as a consequence of that, those voters who used to be or would have been union members are deeply disaffected. So I don't want to suggest that unions are a panacea. I think the question, the larger question is, what are the institutions that can play a role in giving those folks a way to have power in their society where it's not merely disregarding a mask mandate and cheering for a guy who's lying to them. <laughs> so just moving on to Joe Biden then, I mean, someone you know well, is someone you worked with very closely in the Obama years. Well, I mean, he, he must... Becoming president is, is the pinnacle of, of a politician's life. So few people will ever hold that office. I, I understand that the, the slight pessimism that you describe among the, perhaps the mass ranks of the Democratic Party and its supporters, but 
how will he be feeling? Will he feel like it's a huge achievement? Or will he have that, that slight tinge of disappointment for the reasons that you describe? Right. So, well, so let me say I haven't talked to him uh, since Election Day. And so I'm, I'm not speaking for him. Uh, um, and, I'm, uh, and I would never do that anyway. But um, I, I, if I were to guess, first of all, let me say Joe Biden is an optimist. He's a guy who's really believes in the country, believes in public service, believes that public service can improve the country and improve the lives of uh, the people he cares about, middle class families, working families. So I think the he I think he's probably very excited about the prospect of being able to do that in the highest office in the country. I think he's excited at the prospect of bringing change to the country. I think he truly sees himself as a transitional leader, somebody who's going to pave the way for the next generation of great Democratic Party uh, government leaders and political leaders. Um, but I uh, I suspect that he's. Uh, feeling the challenge that he's going to experience if the Republicans keep control of the Senate. Um, you know, the, 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 the policy agenda looks different if Democrats control the Senate and if Republicans control the Senate. Um, and the stuff that we laid out during the campaign was all predicated on having a Democratic Senate. Now, having said that, Joe Biden is one of the great legislative deal makers of the modern era. Um, he has a relationship with Mitch McConnell. And by the way, that, to, that name to some Democrats is a curse word. Um, it's like, go Mitch McConnell yourself. You know, it's that kind of <laughs> level of insult. Um, but not to Joe Biden. He has a relationship with McConnell. He was the guy who cut the deals with McConnell back in the Obama-Biden administration. Uh, he knows a lot of these senators. senators they really admire him. Um, you know, he's, uh, I'll throw another epithet out there. Lindsey Graham is somebody who has very pro uh, vigorously praised Biden. Now, I don't think they all of a sudden have a post-Trump epiphany and realize that, the, boy, the ways of their past are wrong and they're going to repent by becoming Bidenauts. But I think that he will see the possibilities in a more scaled back agenda. So I think he'll be able to get some things done, not everything that he wants to get done. Um, but let me also say there are people in our party that have gigantic appetites, gigantic progressive appetites. Those people are going to be disappointed if the Democrats don't get the Senate back. And let me add, they would probably be disappointed if the Democrats got the Senate back, but just by a very small margin, because this is not a left country. This is not a democratic socialist country. Um, we have democratic socialists in it just as you do. You have actually real socialists in government in your country, not, not democratic time time. socialists. Yes, every now and then, more used, used to have more, fewer now. But um, um, that's not where the electorate is. This election communicates that absolutely unambiguously. Um, and so... Uh, I think that Biden is probably much, much more salutary towards the results than those people on the left of my party. Um, and I think that he'll be excited about the challenge. And I think he's feeling really good 
Um, you know, how many times in your life do you get to be the president of the United States and how many years did it take him to get there? My goodness. <laughs> the, per the, the one thing you could say about Joe Biden is this man knows how to persevere. He is as the most resilient human being I think I've ever met in my life. I don't have to recount for your very sophisticated listeners all the things he's gone through in his life. But it, in, in the middle of his 70s, to be elected president after two other tries, after having been vice president, after having been in the Senate for 40-something years, I mean, that is resilience. And I, I, I admire it. I think the country really admires it. And I think the people in the Senate are going to admire it. And uh, it doesn't mean they won't say no. But it means that they know that if they say no, he's going to come straight back. He's not going to stop coming back because the guy's resilient. We're talking as if it's absolutely a done deal. Um, you know, the likelihood is that he becomes the president. He's not quite there yet at the moment that we talk. And I wonder how much the experience of, of Gore Bush in 2000 hangs over this for the Democrats and what lessons the party has learned from that. Do you think... Uh, this is a chance to exercise that demon and, and be far more robust, perhaps, uh, with the legal proceedings this time. No, no, uh, no, not at all. I, I think, um, well, let me just say, I don't think that this is going to end up being decided by the Supreme Court for a whole host of reasons. Um, but I don't think um, uh, Democrats are going to be any less fearful of that prospect than they were in 2000, uh, partly because... Donald Trump um, appears to be incapable of an unspoken thought, particularly when, what, <laughs> particularly when what he's going to do is nefarious. So he was absolutely explicit that he selected Amy Coney Barrett and wanted her on the Supreme Court because he thought the Supreme Court was going to decide the selection and he didn't trust John Roberts, our chief justice, to vote with him, him, Donald Trump, uh, and so he wanted some insurance on the Supreme Court. And so Amy Coney Barrett, he thinks, is his insurance. Now, add on top of that, that three current members of the Supreme Court, including Justice Barrett, were involved in the Bush v. Gore uh, litigation. They were Republic, young Republican lawyers helping to win an election through the courts, inappropriately through the courts, on behalf of George W. Bush. The other two are John Roberts, the Chief Justice, and Brett Kavanaugh. So uh, I think Democrats look at that and say, well, uh, I'm not going to turn to these guys for a fair outcome in an election. They're looking for a way to hand it to Trump, their patron, at least in the case of, of Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Barrett, their patron. And to make to throw gasoline on the fire, which seems to be one of the ways in which these folks operate, uh, Justice Kavanaugh wrote a concurring opinion in one of the Supreme Court cases that have already been decided that essentially said that the Supreme Court could intervene um, to ensure that state legislatures make all the decisions here and not state election officials. Now, that could have the effect of disrupting vote counting and results in a number of states. And he and two other justices took that position. Um, and that's very troubling, that he is reaching out to signal that he wants to be in this game. He wants to fight this fight. Um, uh, and, uh, and let me also say what was intriguing about that opinion is there were a number of serious factual errors 
in his opinion, and he was called out on those. He had to issue a new opinion. That is uh, unheard of. That I, I'm not aware of a lot of other cases where a Supreme Court justice says things that are just factually wrong and has to correct them. And and it's I think it's tempting to look at that and say, oh, isn't that deliciously Trumpian of him? And it is. Um, so I think Democrats are worried, and they're right to be worried, that you have a bunch of people on the Supreme Court with itchy trigger, trigger fingers looking for a state election return they can fire their guns at. And how... What's your sort of gut tell you? How likely is this that this becomes a, a protracted legal battle and that the sorts of things that these threats are delivered on? Right. So I'm not an election lawyer, but my sense is that there aren't any issues that are subject to litigation here. E even the Trump people are not raising claims that um, right now that are likely to elevate to the Supreme Court or are likely to be dispositive in the election. So one of the issues that is at issue that, that could be raised to the Supreme Court or already has been raised to the Supreme Court and they decided not to take it up was whether the state of Pennsylvania could accept ballots that were mailed before Election Day, but were received after Election Day. Um, and, you know, the state legislature said one thing, state election officials said another thing. And that would be the predicate for saying to uh, Pennsylvania, you can't count any of the votes that arrived after Election Day. Well, we don't know if that's going to matter. That may not matter in the election in Pennsylvania. It looks like Joe Biden is on a path to win Pennsylvania potentially by tens of thousands of votes. Um, unclear that that's what's going to happen, but it appears that that's where we're headed in Pennsylvania. Um, so it's unclear that a lot of ballots are going to arrive and that those ballots would decide the election. So if that's the case, then, you know, that that issue won't go up. The other issues that are being raised, uh, apart from being frivolous, don't seem to have any constitutional questions about them. They're all state law questions. And that those issues don't go to the United States Supreme Court. So I, I think there's a lot of muscle flexing and threatening going on right now. But I don't really see this being a, an election that gets litigated to a conclusion. I think it's the vote counts that will determine it. Um, and, you know, if Joe Biden, as he appears to be on track to do, wins not just Pennsylvania, but also Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, although, you know, any one of those states, all of those states are going to be extremely close and any one of them or two of them could flip another way, um, then, you know, it's kind of unclear what the litigation accomplishes. You know, you won't be able to overturn the results in all of those states and others. So I, um, I'm skeptical that that strategy is going to work. I think it is like so many things that Donald Trump does, an intimidation tactic, an effort to try to threaten people and create confusion and chaos and get in the news and give them a platform for making a case to their supporters. But at the end of the day, you got to have a case. Um, even if it's a flimsy case, you got to have some case. I'm not sure they even have a flimsy case. So let's, let's work on the assumption that Joe Biden is going to be the 46th president of the United States. He's someone you know well. You've worked closely together over the years in the Obama administration. If he picks up the phone to you and says, Seth, I'd like you to come and work for me. I'd like you to you know, be my labor guy. Would you, would you go and work for him or, or would you rather stay out of it this time? 
Yeah. So I don't think that's going to happen. So I think it's a hypothetical. Well, because I think there are lots and lots of really talented people, some of whom are much closer to him than I am, who are uh, likelier candidates. Um, uh, So I I think that that's not a likely scenario. Um, You know, I, I would really have to think long and hard about it. It's not a job that I particularly am seeking or are pursuing I'm not, you know in, in this is something that's that that that, uh, that your British listeners may not identify with because this is so alien to your system you know in your system you have a shadow minister for each of the portfolios and the election happens and boom immediately those people are the cabinet ministers for that portfolio and they're ready to go and they've been you know, I don't know, spitting across the table in the House of Commons <laughs> at whoever's in the portfolio uh, from the party opposite, from the op- from the go- governing party, the governing coalition, and uh, and so they they immediately take office. In the United States, we don't have a shadow minister system. The president uh, elect makes those choices usually just before the election and over the course of the, the what we have a transition period. We have a seventy some odd day period where the incoming party tries to figure out what it, how it's going to take over the government, how it's going to work with career employees, what issues it's going to address, who they're going to hire to be their political appointees. And during this transition process, there's often campaigning of varying kinds to get into those jobs. I'm not doing any of that. I'm, I don't <laughs> want to do any of that. I, I'm not, I, you know, I, I've sat in that chair even temporarily. It was the thrill of a lifetime. It was a tremendous honor to serve. Um, but I'm not pursuing it. And, you know, I, I guess so hypothetically, I think someone who doesn't pursue something might get it, but I don't think that's the ordinary case. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how all of this plays out. Um, uh, and I'll certainly be cheering him on from the outside. I'll be helping uh, whoever becomes the Secretary of Labor with whatever advice they, they want from me. Um, and I'll be uh, uh, trying as much as I possibly can to try and advance some of those conversations we were talking about earlier uh, in the in our dialogue here. Well, we listeners of this show, Seth, will be looking out for you on on White House lawns and and, and American news coverage, <laughs> hoping hoping that our guy gets uh, gets gets the ear of what looks to be. Uh, the next president, but it, it must be so exciting. They're much, for you. Let me just say, though, Matt, they're much more likely to find me bent over a pint of Guinness in their <laughs> local pub than they are to see me on the White House lawn, unless somehow I've been thrown onto the White House lawn over the now unscalable <laughs> fence and I'm being swarmed by Secret Service agents. That's the only likely way that that happens. But I want to. So you asked me about my future. I'm going. I'm now taking control of this podcast because I want to ask you a question. Ooh. Because on behalf of your millions of fans worldwide because they're dying to know the the cards and letters have been pouring in when people found out that I was going to be doing this podcast so here's the question for you so you are one of the world's great maybe the world's greatest Trump impersonator um, your I have seen your Trump impersonation it is hilariously funny almost as funny as the real thing. (laughs) And so my question for you is, are you now going to retire your Trump impersonation? Or do you have harbored within you, deep in the darkest part of your soul, the hope that Donald Trump will remain a sufficiently public figure that you can roll that impersonation out and still get the uproarious laughs that it gets today? 
That is a very good question. Um, I kind of think he'll still be around. You know, someone like Trump doesn't just, it's not in his nature to shut up. So um, <laughs> I think I'll still get a bit of mileage, but it's not the same once he's not president. You know, the, the comedy of Trump was direct, directly related to the fact that he was in charge. That's what made it so darkly comic was the fact that this pillock had been put in charge. That's what made it so funny. Otherwise, he was just a, a guy ranting in his own tower. Right. Um, so I think I'm glad because my politics aren't the same as Trump's that he's sorry by the way there are fireworks going off here I don't know if you can hear them I hear them slightly in the background you're not under attack are you Matt are people no, so upset about so. that question I just asked you is, is there are people shelling your location <laughs> yes that, the fireworks not, not gunfire but um, yes there is a part of me that feels like this character has kind of moved on you know that it was someone that um, I got a lot of mileage out for Four good years, you know, he was he was kind of the centerpiece of my comedy show. So in a strange way, even though as a former Labour staffer, I always want the Democrats to win. There's, there's maybe one percent of me that thinks, oh, you know, the kind of fun, the comedy fun with Trump has kind of come to an end. But I shall immediately start applying myself to my Joe Biden impersonation. Which I was going to ask. I, I was going to ask. I thought you might want to do the world premiere <laughs> of your Joe Biden impersonation here on this podcast with me. What an, what an honor that would be for me. <laughs> well, it's not quite good enough yet. Now, some people might say that hasn't stopped me on some of my others. But <laughs> for the new president, I feel, I feel that the first time you hear it, it should be in very good shape. I wouldn't well, look, I look forward to it. Because okay, let me just say, though, I, I, I want to seriously ask you about this because I'm such a fan of stand-up and impersonation and your stand-up and impersonation in particular. Um, Joe Biden seems like somebody who's very difficult to impersonate because he he uh, uh, and we're seeing that. Let me just say with 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 really terrific comedians in the United States at your level, like Jim Carrey and others who are trying to impersonate him, and he has some mannerisms like the the aviator glasses and some some hand gestures that are distinctive, but his voice is not as distinctive as Trump's voice and his speech pattern. Maybe, I don't know, you tell me, you're the expert in this kind of thing. Well, I agree. Trump, and part of the reason why there are so many Trump impersonators, the same as Elvis, is he's the sort of guy <laughs> that most people think they could probably have a bit of a crack at. You know, I think there will still be Trump impersonator, um, you know, Trump con will probably become a thing in the way that sort of like Elvis has for years and years. You know, it'll be a thing that people do. I don't think it'll be the same for Joe Biden. And there is less to hang your hat on. There's less of a hook there. I mean, he talks about Scranton a lot. He's got that kind of homespun um, warmth to him. You know, there are things to go at, but yes, he is. With Trump and, and with Boris Johnson here, two oh characters my. that have really augmented personas that they've created themselves and that have built up over time. Whereas everyone else kind of doesn't speak like that. And they have been you know, act for the night in uh, the 5th of November here. They've been like a firework display, really, the pair of them. Yeah, yeah. I, I must say that that has been part of the appeal, I think, of Joe Biden in, in contrast to Donald Trump is I think America is ready to be bored again. <laughs> yes. I, I think we are ready to uh, you know, avert our gaze from the coverage of the White House from Twitter, 
we're ready to get back to our lives. You know, it's, we've, we've lived the experience of an airline pilot who gets off the plane after hitting horrible weather, losing a tire or two and skidding the belly on the runway. And he gets off and looks at the people on the ground and says, that was much too exciting. <laughs> I think a lot of America is just too much excitement, ready to get back to our regular humdrum lives. <laughs> Well, maybe, maybe this is a huge opportunity because if it's boring you're after, you know, I can provide that. I've been, <laughs> I've been boring. I have a track record of boring audiences across the UK. So maybe this is my time to break America. Seth, it is always a pleasure. Thank you so much for giving me so much of your time. It's such a busy time. It's such an important time. And on behalf of everybody who listens to this show, you were superb last time. You've got a whole new legion of fans over here in the UK. Um, we hope you're, you're our direct line to the, to the White House now. So we hope you have the ear of the president because you're a phenomenal communicator, a brilliant thinker, and I'm sure America can make use of your abundant talent. Thanks, Matt. I really appreciate it. Always a tremendous pleasure to be with you. And I'm looking forward to the end of this epidemic. If all that means is that you're going to come to the United States and perform, that would be good enough for me. <laughs> oh, mate. Well, we shall make that happen. Seth, thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. Seth Harris, someone I need to meet and drink Guinness with. I mean, that absolutely needs to happen. I know the Mooch has talked about me going over there and having steak at his restaurant. What a day that would be. Have a day with the Mooch eating steak in his New York restaurant and then go over and see Seth and drink a load of Guinness. I mean, that would be, that would be, I think, the best day of my life. So I hope you've enjoyed this American special. Of course, future podcasts will also reflect when the result is declared and whatever twists and turns uh, are to come will be reflected on the show. But I thought it was worth, at this stage, talking to the Mooch and talking to Seth about the respective sides and getting those respective insights, even though at the point of recording, it isn't 100% uh, that that Biden has, has won yet. But I thought it was... I couldn't resist it, to be honest. They're two of the best guests I've had on. A treat to have them both on the same episode. Uh, Don't forget, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. And I hope, and I know, actually, there's so much American election coverage out there um, that even though it's fascinating, it's also quite repetitive. So I hope, in a way, this has been just something slightly different, something more lighthearted and... um, just really good to get the insights from the two separate sides, even though the Mooch obviously wanted Trump to lose. He knows him well. And, uh, you know, that is just such valuable insight and, and brilliant stuff from Seth. I mean, obviously, as a as a new Labour guy, all that stuff about how the Democrats win and how they interpret not just win the White House, but the issues with the Senate uh, and Congress in general, you just think, oh, this is this is really up my street. You know, this is stuff I really need to talk to me in more detail about. So I shall end it there because I'm sure you've had enough American coverage elsewhere. Have a great weekend and I'll see you next week. Ta-ra. Ta-ra.